Jose? What's going on, brother? What's going on, man? How's it going? I'm good, man. I'm on top of the world, man. Top oh, of the world. Love to hear it. How's it going with you, man? Can't complain. Can't complain, man. It's uh, always good to be on with you. And, man, I don't know what it is. We're, we are on a roll with the guest here. Yeah, we're, we're doing our thing, man. We're doing our thing. So it's, it's, it's very exciting, man. It is. It is. And I'm we're you know waiting for our guest to uh just to connect with us on here but pumped to share it with our audience yeah I, i'm definitely excited man like um you know we've talked off the air uh about the our you know our guest that's coming up and and you know and again i'll give you credit man like you kind of like put me on to some of those books that he's written and you know and i i've been doing a little bit of reading myself and you know, I, I can't wait to dive into a little more, but uh, there's some very interesting, you know, topics and, and, and people that were written about. So, yeah, it's it's really exciting. Yeah. And, um, you know, before he comes on, we can kind of talk about it. it's been uh, mm-hmm. it's been a very ex- I don't know the word exciting is the word, but it's I mean, it definitely I guess it has been that. But just uh, uh, all over the place kind of past 24 hours in the world of sports currently. Um, and a lot of things have just been going on. Oh, yeah. And, and it's funny because we were literally talking last night and, you know, and it just stuff started popping off with the NBA. And, you know, and I'll let you kind of speak on that a little bit, but I, and I, it was funny that hey, you mentioned it to me that you kind of saw this, the writing was on the wall. Yeah, it was, you know, and we're talking about the, the, the stoppage that happened in the NBA playoffs and the NBA bubble. And we're talking about just how uh, you saw the writing on the wall when you saw what, you know, from Doc Rivers and, you know, Donovan Mitchell and, and all these other, you know, players were talking about Jamel Murray and you kind of could see that it was brewing. And, um, yeah, and I so I wasn't shocked by what happened Thursday. And we saw it. I knew definitely when you saw the Bucks yeah. doing it, you knew the uh, – in baseball, the Milwaukee Brewers had to do it. And we, we saw it around the sports landscape, honestly. But, yeah, we, yeah, we did, and it was, it was shocking. Yeah, but we'll, – and we'll continue this. But, Jose, our uh, – our guest is here on in the zone with us. And this author has written some of my all time favorite books. He has a book coming out three ring circus in, in September that I'm uh, to talk to him about, but also can't wait to read and share it with everyone. Like I've done all the other books I have by him, (laughs) but it is a absolute pleasure. I know we're both honored to have the one and only Jeff Perlman on with us. Jeff, thanks for joining us. I can tell you factually, I'm not the one and only Jeff Perlman. <laughs> the former, the former mayor of Delray Beach, Florida, also named Jeff Perlman. So. For for me, you are the one and only because you, <laughs> you are the only Jeff Perlman. When I'm everyone who my friends and family who know sports, when I say Jeff Perlman, they they know I mean you and not the former mayor of Delray, California. So All right, that's fair enough. In I my world, that. you are the one and only. But if I meet another Jeff Perlman, I'll I'll you the first to know. Thank you. I yeah, I thought the mayor was coming on. Now I'm like, I'm on. <laughs> damn it. I want to talk Delray. <laughs> yeah. We were so hyped. Sorry, Jose. We were so hyped to talk some Delroy, Delray stuff, and now the show's done. But, <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Sure. sure. My pleasure. 
and we uh, we were starting to talk, and we just wanted to ask you real quick about what are your thoughts on we definitely want to talk to you about you know writing in, in the books you've written in your career but just with everything that's gone on in the past 24 hours in sports what was your first reaction to seeing it yesterday I was inspired I thought it was inspiring I think um, a lot of us I mean I didn't grow up when uh, I didn't grow up during Jackie Robinson sort of breaking through I didn't grow up with uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith passing the fist of freedom during the Olympics. But this feels really important and it feels really pronounced and it feels really sort of, um, it's just profound, you know, it's a profound moment. And if it just needs to be done, you know, there need to be statements made. And, and I thought it was interesting. The backlash has been a lot of, Oh, these guys are making a lot of money. Who are they to complain or blah. And, that's so besides the point you can make a lot of money and still work for others. And you can still feel the pain of others, even if you're not experiencing it specifically. And I just, I thought it was a great moment. I, I was proud of sports in America. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent, Jeff. And again, thanks for coming on. And um, yeah, I, it, it, for me, it's going to be one of those days. I, I I'm probably never going to forget, you know, cause it, I, I was, I was in shock, you know, like not not in shock that, you know, that, that the players responded the way they did. But, you know, it, it, through all this, everything going on, with George, George Floyd and, and everything else. Right. And um, I, I was always thinking, man, if they really want to make a statement, man, they all just start boycotting some games and, and maybe some important games. And when I saw that happen yesterday, I was like, whoa, like this, this is this is big time. Like and, and I again, and you mentioned it like I, I can so appreciate that. Yep. I agree. I just, again, it's easy to speak out. It's easy to sit on your couch and complain. It's easy to do a lot of things. So when you take action and you take a stand and you know, you're going to get a lot of heat for it and you know, there's going to be a lot of criticism. Um, it's impressive. So I, uh, again, I was inspired by it. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, Jose, you know, as for me as a black man, Jose, you know, as a, you know, another man of color, it, we've talked about it off air, on air, just how important it is. And and I said it yesterday, you know, when I tweeted it out and talked to people, I always still find it odd and laugh. You referenced Jackie Robinson in the 68 Olympics, but as far back as Jack Johnson, sports and, and culture and race has always intertwined. And I find it funny that these past, you know, since, you know, the past four years, especially with Start from Colin Kaepernick, it's almost like this never happened before. And what? And all these things. And I'm like, this has always been what's going on. And it's I'm proud, like you said, I'm inspired. I was proud because that was a concern of mine that when they went, especially for the NBA, going back into this bubble, if this cause would be lost. And I'm glad that it's still on the forefront of all their minds. Well, how old are you guys? I'm 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 old. I'm 40, man. <laughs> and I'm 31. All right, well, if you're old, I'm 48, so I'm super old. And um, <laughs> I feel like one thing I've learned through the years, and my dad has said this to me a lot, and it's sad but true, is history isn't a history is not a straight line where we progress from here to here to here to here. It's generally a repetition, and you hope that humanity makes advances, and it might make advances, but it's going to have the same battles over and over again. Now, maybe sometimes it'll be uh, the women's, uh, a woman's right to vote is replaced by gay rights or some sort of, you know, there, 
it'll shift what is happening. You have the same arguments over and over again. And I feel like Colin Kaepernick kneeling is a perfect example. Colin Kaepernick kneels and you have all these conservatives screaming how he's disrespecting the flag and he should be grateful for his job and it's disrespectful of America. And those are the same things that were being said in the Jim Crow South. And those are the same things that were being said during the bus boycotts. You should be happy you're just allowed to ride the bus. So what if you have to sit in the back? You should be lucky that we give you education. So what if your schools aren't as good as ours? It's like the, the circumstances change, but the arguments are always the same. And I honestly believe when I'm dead and my kids are alive, and my grandkids are alive, there will still be these same arguments being made, maybe slightly different circumstances, but the same debates. And it really gets tiring. It really gets tiring. This is a, this is a clear cut argument, in my opinion. Blacks are targeted by police officers far too often. Um, the incarceration rates are ridiculous. Uh, the treatment of young black males by police officers is unjustified far too often. There's not much of an argument, but we keep having these same debates over and over again because some people just refuse to be enlightened. Yeah, and, and see, I, I look at, you know, I look at this through the eyes and the lens of, of you know, as a Hispanic, like in the Hispanic community as well. And, you know, and that's, you know, for me, that's my biggest fear. You know, I have a 16 or soon to be 16 year old son and soon to be 15 year old stepson. And, you know, my fear is that this is not going to really change. You know, like it, it's just going to and you may you kind of mention it like it's just it, it's just going to be dealt with in other settings almost like it, it's just going to be different examples. And and again, that that's my biggest fear. Like, I don't want my boys to grow up and have to worry about, you know, getting pulled over by the police and like literally fearing for their lives. Like I and, and it's. And it's a tough conversation to have as well. Like, you know, how can I prepare my boys for this? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I could just be totally honest and, and and let them know what's going on and not, like, you know, shield them from 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 the world. And and again, this is this. And I love that you said that because that's exactly how I feel. Like, it, I, I just my fear is that this nothing's really going to change. It's just exasperating and yep. it's tiring. And. I am so fed up by this stubbornness and it's interesting. I grew up, so I grew up in a tiny, small conservative town with a ton of racism. Uh, my one of my best friend who was black had two crosses burned in his front yard mm. when we were kids growing up. And, but I feel like a lot of the people I grew up with, they didn't understand racism. They didn't know racism. I didn't really understand racism. I was a white kid in a white town. Um, you grow up, I have two biracial nephews. And all of a sudden, when it's your family or it's close up, you start thinking about them. It's kind of like you're anti-gay marriage and then your son is gay. And then you meet your son's boyfriend yeah. and your son's boyfriend is great. And you see how happy your son is. And all of a sudden you're changed. And I feel like the problem so many people have is a lack of exposure. Once you are exposed, once you understand, once you talk to someone who's black and you talk to the fear they have about their sons walking home at night, it opens your eyes. But so many people never have that conversation and never see it. And they just refuse to believe that America is anything but great and everything's going well and you should stop complaining and just be grateful you have a job. And it's <laughs> exasperating. Yeah. And as the only black man on the, the conversation, it's uh, times a thousand. It is exasperating. And the the problem is... It's, and it's so deep on, I think you're right, Jeff, on lack of exposure, but it's also really the education 
and the the I'll be honest, the no pun intended, the whitewashing of history. So we don't want we flip history where we talk about, you know, whether it's Japanese you know, internment camps or, you know, all this bigotry or even the truth about Dr. King. It gets flipped and flipped and told in a different way. And, you know, hey, we give you Black History Month, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And then we can forget about it the other 11 months of the year. And it starts with that education. And it starts with people really wanting to understand. Because I think a lot of times, like you said, um, people will give comments from their couches or online. But the true difference is, is when it's far away, you can even now say some people are starting to say, oh, that is wrong or, you know, justice for George Floyd. But let it be when it hits close to home. When, all right, you look outside your neighborhood and you see your neighbors and it's not, you know, maybe you have one black family and a bunch of white families, you feel kind of okay. If you see it truly diverse, are you comfortable with that? Where they live in, you know, different cultures live in your neighborhood. Different cultures go to school with your kids. Like, and I don't know if people really, truly, even those who are saying that they, quote unquote, Black Lives Matter, if they're truly comfortable with that. I agree with you. I also think one thing that bothered me a lot and I've been thinking a lot about is you have people who are white and they believe in the cause, right? And they, they believe in the cause. They believe Black Lives Matter and they want to help. And I'm thinking about Portland in particular. They throw themselves in the front of the battle um, and they stand at the front of the line marching. And there's a lot of ego that goes into that. I, mm -hmm. I just think, I just really think right now is a great time for white people who believe in the cause, like myself, to be supportive, but not take center stage, to back it, to be in the march. You don't need to be out front. You know, you, to show support, to give money, to, you know, protect, to help serve as barriers between the police, whatever it takes, but not to be in front. It is not your show. And I think the best thing we can do right now is support the movements without trying to take over the movements. And I, what bothered me a little bit was so many people trying to, it almost felt like confiscate the battle. And um, I don't know. It's a weird time. It's the weirdest time I've ever lived in. Same. Yeah, it is. And, and it's funny because I, I – I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before. Um, these days, nowadays, been working from home and everything. Just they're just one oh, combined. <laughs> yeah, they're just one combined day. But it was a video out, and you know, it was a lady sitting in front of a restaurant, and they were protesters, and they all had their hands raised, you know, the fist in the air, and they were all white protesters. And the lady was uh, also she was also a white woman, and she was not putting her fist in the air, and they were giving her shit for it, and that like. And kind of what you touched on, Jeff, it was like, no, like, this is not like, this is not what you should be doing. Like, just, just support and, and don't make it all about you. And, uh, it, it, it was like, um, like Juneteenth, let's just say, I'm going to use that for an example as well. Like it was really never celebrated until this year now. And, yeah. you know, my fear is I don't want Juneteenth to become Cinco de Mayo, like that it becomes like a party day and it's just like, everybody go get drunk and let's have fun. Like. You know, there's some real seriousness behind these these holidays. And, and and again, just to kind of touched on what you said, like, I agree. I, my fear as well that, you know, it's going to be I don't want to say diluted, but it, it just it's going to turn into something else. And that's what I don't want. You know, my uh, my wife and I talk about this a lot, this kind of phenomenon. Um, we were both in New York on 9-11. We live not mm -hmm. far from from ground zero, blah, 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 blah. And after 9-11 happened there's kind of a phenomenon of people taking ownership of 9-11. And 
desperately needing to tell their stories. And I'm not talking about people who are in the towers. And I'm not talking about people who had friends even who were lost. I'm talking about people, maybe you lived in New York mm. and yeah. you saw it on TV and it was really scary for you. Or maybe you live in Kentucky and your cousin lived in New York and you call, you had to call and make sure he was okay and he was okay. And it's something about humanity. It's weird. I, sometimes I see it in myself and I have to remind myself, wait, this isn't your story. Where we want to feel a part of something, we need to feel a part of it. It reminds me of being a kid, being one of the few Jewish kids in my town and desperately wanting to experience Christmas and going to my neighbor's house, being invited to my neighbor's house for Christmas and enjoying it and coming home and my parents reminding me, it's not your holiday. Hmm. Like you're not, that's not your holiday. You're not, it's not your holiday. You can go over for an hour. That's fine. But you can't, you're not, that's not yours. And I feel like we, it's a weird human phenomenon that a lot of people have where they want to be a part of something and they want to feel a part of something, even if it's not entirely theirs. No, absolutely. I, I agree a, a thousand percent with that. And uh, I don't know how to necessarily, I know we're not going to solve it in this conversation, but yeah. to fix that part, because I, I do see that. And you're right. The 9-11 stories is a great example. And, and for me, it's even been for years it's happened, but even the past few months, when you're talking to uh, people of different races and they, you know, about the N word and they listen to a song and they're like, well, they say in the song, oh. how come I can't say it? And I'm like, because not everything is yours. And I have to go through it. And I go, I have friends of different races who will say, you know, that ethnic slur about their race to other people in their race. I'm like, just because I'm friends with them or I hear it doesn't give me that right to that. Oh, I can say that too now. Or oh I can hop, or you know, I've heard women culturally the B word, and they're they're just saying it in a joking way. I don't go, oh well, I heard him say it. I'm friends with these ladies. I can call them the B word. Like, not everything is yours. You don't have a right to it. Like you, you know, I had to tell them like because I even try to make sure I use different examples. Most likely, those women who are culturally the B word, they've also have experienced what it's like to be called that in a derogatory way. I don't know that feeling. I don't no, understand right, that. Right. I can tell a Jewish joke. You can't. Right. Yep. Period. That's it. That's how it works. It's not even complicated. It's amazing. My kids are in high school. Uh, we live in Orange County, California, which is, it's only diverse as far as Asian, Hispanic, white. Very few African-American kids here at my kids' school. And my kids tell me about tons of white kids using the N-word. And their two reasons are, number one, I hear it in hip hop, so it's okay. And number two... Oh, uh, you know, my my black friend Steve says I'm an honorary <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I just want to freaking punch these kids in the face. Like, I I love hip-hop as much as anybody. I've never used the N-word. I don't need to use the N-word. I know the power of the N-word. I'm not using it. I'm not saying it, period. It's not hard. And you, there's no such thing as an honorary. I can joke around and say, you're an honorary Jew because you have Passover at my house. You still can't tell a Jewish joke. It's right. like I can't tell a black joke. Like, it's not complicated. No, it, it's not. It's not. And, and, and Jeremy making a good point, man. And I, and it's like, I know like in the area where I grew up, if, you know, we're going to talk about that. And, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. I was born and raised in North Philadelphia, which is predominantly Hispanic and African-American community. Um, and, and that's how everybody spoke. Right. And it was just like, that's how everybody talked. And it's like, now that I'm older, there's like no way I can, there's no way I can speak like that. Like there's absolutely no way. And I still have friends who amongst themselves speak like that. And, you know, it, it just, 
something culturally that we were taught like growing up and it was that like, okay to use that word and now I'm glad like this younger generation is like no like you know and not it was not to say it was just the younger generation because I'm not saying that but um like they're like no you can't use that word like not even repeat it in songs like I can remember watching like what, uh, what was it? white chicks and you know when that part when they were in the car and they were like singing the song and it was like you know you can't say that like and I, I'm glad like no you can't say that and I, I'm just glad this generation is coming up where they're not just letting anyone just freely say that like that. It would just never enter my mind. Yeah. It would never even enter my mind. I'll tell you what is interesting. I um, just, I just thought this back in 1999, when I was at sports illustrated, I did a story about, uh, there's a baseball player named John Rocker. Oh, yes. my, all right. My famous story at the time, John Rocker, the racist baseball player. And maybe, I don't know, seven, eight months after that story came out, there used to be a magazine called George Magazine. It was a political magazine run by John JFK Kennedy's Jr., cousin. yeah. Exactly. And um, they did a profile of John Rocker's father, Jake Rocker, for the magazine. And one day I'm sitting somewhere and I get a call from a fact checker from George Magazine. And he said, so I have to check something with you. John Rocker's dad said, you use the N-word to goad John Rocker. <laughs> that you actually said the N-word you called two women working at a department store, the N word. And I remember sitting there and taking this phone call. And I don't think I've ever been more angry in my life, ever more angry in my life. Because I, to me, that word is so toxic and carries so much weight and so much meaning. And some guy's accusing you of using it. And I remember telling the fact that I was like, I'm just telling you, Factory, I've never used that word. He's lying to you. And they included in the story his accusation. And it was one of the most angry and hurtful moments of my career. I don't know if 10 people read this story, but I just, I don't, I don't, the comfort people have with that word, uh, whites have with that word, is I've never understood. I don't see how anyone could be comfortable with it because to me, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I don't know. Anyway, sorry to babble. No, no, um, <laughs> because that, we definitely know, uh, that article that's a we're this is you know in the zone we we are you know we love sports history we connect the past to the present and we definitely remember that article because that you know i'm the son my mom's from south carolina big baseball fan and so you know the there's no baseball team in care the braves are you know her team and so john rocker coming out there and was a hell of a closer at that time and that you know, those comments that he said, it, it was, it was devastating for my mom as a fan of the Braves. Like it was rooting. It was devastating. Like, wow. Like, and at that Sorry. time, yeah, baseball. No, no, we're glad. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Cause it was, uh, it was good to see. It was good to see that. Like a lot of times I, I hear Charles Barkley say it where he's like in the locker room, that's the place where that doesn't happen. And I'm like, are there examples of that? Yeah. But I'm like, no, no, no. It doesn't mean because you're cool with a Hispanic teammate or a black teammate that you, you, you can't be racist. Right. And right. so you, you always hear people, well, you know, oh, you yeah. know, right. Riley Cooper, he, he, we never saw that at Florida or never saw it when he was here with the Eagles. So that, that, that doesn't mean like he can't be racist, you know? So I was glad you showed that because yeah, I think sports does, that's the beauty of it can bring people together. But I know when the Eagles won the Super Bowl and we were down there for the parade, there was a lot of guys who I, 99.9% sure we're hugging me celebrating on any other day. Wouldn't give me wouldn't you know, wouldn't piss on me if my ass was on fire. So yeah. that's why I'm like, eh, no, that's a misnomer that 
well, he's cool in the locker room, so he can't be racist. You know what, what um, sort of playing off of that, that really upset me the other day was, so I saw Herschel Walker spoke at the Republican mm. convention. Yep. And today I actually saw Dower Strawberry as a Trump speech, um, his speech at the Republican convention. I really think people like that, or right now Jason Whitlock is yeah. working for Outkick the Coverage. And I know it's unfair in a way to blame African-Americans, blah, 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 blah. But I just think when African-Americans support people like Trump and the messaging of Trump, they allow white people to say, how can I be racist? Herschel Walker is speaking for him. How can I be racist? Daryl Strawberry is at the speech. How can I be racist? Jason Whitlock, blah, blah, blah. It is so damaging. And it's, it's in that same mindset of how can I be racist? My... My friend in high school is black and he'll tell you I'm a cool guy or my friend, blah, blah, blah. It's just so it drive Herschel Walker speech actually drove me to the point of almost punching a wall because it just is so damaging and gives cover to really bad people. Well, and, um, and not to, but like, because I, I, you know, we definitely still wanted to, but this has been a great conversation. It's just, mm -hmm. I felt the same way. And honestly, because you wrote that book on the USFL, and I'm someone who, you know, I know Jose has too. followed Herschel, his career, followed kind of the, the different antics of him. I, I wasn't even surprised. You know, that's how that's how I look like. I'm like, of course, because oh, I yeah. knew Trump paid him that contract and and Trump highlighted Herschel. And I, I, I just wasn't even surprised. And and from him to a Ben Carson to Jason Whitlock, it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's just disappointing. It, yeah. I mean, uh, it just allows for people, for whites that feel like they're not being racist. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's exasperating. I loved Herschel Walker as a kid. I loved him as a USFL player. I can't look at him now. Just no respect. No. Absolutely. Wow. I, I feel the same way. And it's, it's, it's disappointing. And I almost kind of, there's no excuse. I feel like with Herschel, like, he doesn't even know any better. But it's, it's still, there's not an excuse. You should know better. And yep. you should know that just because, yes, you grew up and you went to the University of Georgia and it may not be the exact same racism that you got down south doesn't mean that it's not racism and it's not prejudice. And not everybody, you know, I always laugh like when The Blind Side came out. I love that book by Michael Lewis. The movie's good, too. And everyone looked at that as like, see, that's inspiring. And I'm like, no, that's the opposite, because. How many people are in that same spot and aren't 6'5 and 330 yep. and these amazing athletes who are going to, you know, like they're just average Joes. Like that's not something you see every day. Like Michael Orr is just walking down the street or Herschel Walker. So you should really magnify that that's not the norm. Oh, everyone and also have that experience. It's interesting because um, I saw Mike Pence did a speech yesterday at the convention and he was sitting with at one point. They did some video of him sitting with a mother, a single mom working three jobs. And the point of the message was supposed to be, look at this. This is the America we love. She's hardworking, blah, blah, blah. And the bigger question is, why the fuck does this woman have to work three jobs in modern America? Exactly. Like, wow, that's great. She's strong. But like, why is she working three jobs? What is wrong with our system that some woman, a single mom, has to work three jobs to support her kid? That is insane. Yeah, and does she even see her kid? Like, you yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's, it, it's like, all right, like this is the American dream, but it, it, sadly it is. Like, you know, there's so many kids out here who are being raised by 
other family members or even just friends just because mom and dad have to work two jobs to even try to support the household. It, it's it's nuts. Like, and yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. So I, I, I want to – Go ahead, Jose. Real quick, Jeremy, I wanted to kind of piggyback on – you mentioned John Rocker. And, you know, I I, I, um, I read an article you wrote in – Back in 2014, I think it was like the 15-year anniversary of the John Rocker uh, story. And I, I just got to ask you, like, when you went out there in December, that December, to, to interview John Rocker, like, that day just seemed to be, like, insane. Like, like can you just describe that? Like, I, I just, I mean, you did a great job describing it in that article, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I was just reading it, and I was just like, holy shit. Like, this dude is nuts. Like, it, it was yeah. It was, um... The best way I can explain it is I've said this a lot. We were basically two white guys in a car. And I think he honestly thought that meant we're two white guys in a car and I'm going to protect him. Or we're two guys who surely must share the same opinions. Hmm. It's the only way I can explain it. You know, like we're two white guys in a car, so this should be okay. You know, like that's kind of funny because I'm a liberal New York Jewish guy. You know, like I'm, you know, like I'm basically like the last guy who's going to agree with you on any of this crap, you know? So, you know, we're just, it was supposed to be, we were driving around for, I was going to spend the day with him. And I just knew I'd written a story about him. They're supposed to run earlier yeah, and it got canceled. I wrote it. It was during the playoffs. The Braves got swept by the Yankees in the world series. The story never ran. My editor said, do you want to go down to Georgia, freshen it up, called his agent. His agent's like, you're going to love John. You should totally do this. It's going to be so fun. I'm like, okay. I would say you should know your client. You got to know your client. Like that was an agent who did not know his client at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I, you know, he picked me up on the side of a road by a mall. We're driving very early on into it. We get to a toll booth. Toll booth won't open. He spits on the toll booth. The guy behind us is honking. He flashes a middle finger to the guy behind us. We're driving along. There's someone in front of us that's driving kind of erratically. He assumes it's an Asian woman. It's a white guy. <laughs> we go to a school for disadvantaged kids where he's supposed to speak. He steals the Twisted Sister CD they used to introduce him. Um, we, he hates foreigners. He calls a black teammate a fat monkey. Um, he doesn't really like gays very much. It was just on and on. He cheats on his girlfriend. He has another girlfriend. There's like a day of being like, God, this guy's awful. And thing is, as a journalist, your job isn't to um, pass judgment. Like mm-hmm. your job is to ask questions and to try to understand. So as he's sitting there saying how much he hates foreigners, it's not my job to be like, what do you mean you hate foreigners? Blah, 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 blah. Like my job is to listen. My job is to get to know who this person is. Mm-hmm. And it was a crazy, crazy day. And I remember getting out of the car and calling my mom, who I'm very close to, and saying, this was the weirdest day ever. And kind of telling her what happened, and it was one of my weirdest days of my life, truly. It it, it just sounds like Training Day, like like the yeah. movie Training Day. <laughs> he didn't ask me to take any drugs, but otherwise, it was totally it was like Training Day. Yeah. I um, because I remember the article. I remember the fifteenth anniversary article, and I was on a radio show at the time, and, and arguing with uh, a former Eagles player who was a co-host with me about that, and he was always. You know, you shouldn't write that. You shouldn't write that. But I pretty much told him, I'm like, you know, and I don't get me wrong. I love this show, but Eastbound and Down with Danny McBride, I'm like, Kenny Powers, that's that's just John Rocker. Like, 
you know, 15 years later. Like, that's pretty much because Kenny Powers does the same thing. And that's what I got, like, reading that article and even reading the 15th anniversary one. It's just, yeah, and I think you're right. You just kind of thought, I think of that Bill Burr bit when he talks about being, like, like at a bar and some white guy, like, they're, like, watching, like, Sports Center and T.O.'s on the screen and he says, look at that N-word. And then Bill Burr's like, whoa, you don't just throw that on me. You don't know how I feel. And then I'm, I'm going to get me an ass whooping because of what you said. And it's like, but people kind of just assume, like, well, we're kind of similar, so – you must think the way I think, and you, you get what John Rocker gave you that day. Well, it's interesting. There was definitely a, there were definitely some people who thought I was wrong to do this story, and I always say two things. Number one, it's not my job to protect a racist, a racist, xenophobe, homophobe. Like, not really my job to protect him. <laughs> right. And also, number two, like, you don't want me writing your racist views? Don't express your racist views. <laughs> like, it's not that complicated. You didn't have to say any of that. You didn't have... I'm not a mind reader. So if you just told me about your time with the Braves and how you love fishing, that's my story. You know, like you chose to talk to a reporter with a notepad out, with a microphone, with a tape recorder running to tell him all that stuff. So don't blame the messenger. You blame the idiot. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, Jeff, about, you know, the different books you've written from you know, the, about the 86 Mets with the bad guys won, the USL FL book, uh, Boys Will Be Boys. And I know with how detailed they are in the stories and the different interviews you're doing, you're spending probably a few years of like research and, you know, interviews to yeah. at least. Yeah. So, and the, the subjects you've picked have all been kind of very different. There's some similar themes, but different. So I'm wondering, I know like if you're not interested, it's going to make it harder to want to do the book. So like, how do you kind of pick like the, the subjects for your book? Like what are some of the criteria you look at to like decide I'm going to spend the next few years talking about this player or this team? Yeah, that's a good question. I basically have three criteria. I mean, it's nothing official, but I always think uh, number one, has the subject been done and done well? Like Walter Payton is a good example. Uh, there was never, there'd never been a really definitive Walter Payton biography. So, okay, it's out there. Number two, is it something I could enjoy spending two years on? Two years is a long time to spend with a subject. Um, I get very obsessive and very detailed and, you know, very into it. Um, and then number three, does it have a chance of selling? Does it have a chance? You know, like this is my profession. It's how I make a living. Your next book deal is only sort of as good as your last book was sales-wise. So I'm always thinking about those things. The US of L is actually the only book I ever written where I ignored number three. Like the US of L, the odds of that thing selling well were not great because very few people remember the US of L. But it was always a dream of mine to write that book. And I did. It actually wound up being on the bestsellers list, but there was no reason to think it would. So um you know, I just I try to think of those three things, maybe. Hmm. No, that's 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 pretty cool. Like, because I can't, because even like you know, obviously doing the show is totally different from you writing a book and selling. You know, one you know the best authors in in sports writing. Period. And um, so I I can't. You're, you're welcome. It's it's I'm not. I'm not equating the two, you know. But it's like with us, like I, I definitely can understand that, man. Because it's like 
you know, what are we going to talk about? And it's something I want to be very passionate about and make sure I have all the facts. And and I can't imagine how it is to like write a book and anything like that. So it's just looking at some of these books and and Jeremy kind of talked about like there are some like, like a correlation with all the books. And it, I'm just looking in the one that like kind of the one that got my attention really was was the Brett Favre, the Gunslinger book, and mm-hmm. and how. So when you approach a, like you know an idea like that, like all right, I'm going to write about Brett Favre, and it's like you know obviously it was some heat because you kind of went into not only on the field but you know off the field stuff. Like, do you ever think to yourself like, man, like I'm going to catch a lot of shit if I put this out hmm. there? Every time, yeah, every time. But the truth of the matter is. I sort of made this, I came to this realization early in my career of writing books. Um, there are two ways you can write sports books. You can write the all glowing, glorious praise, you know, to whoever, Walter Payton or Brett Favre or the 86 Mets. And it's just a fan book. You can write a fan book. and There's nothing wrong with that. Here are the great memories and you're going to love it, blah, blah, blah. But I, um, I just think... Like, I think Walter Payton, I think Brett Favre, they're historic figures in sports. They are. They're historic figures in sports. And if I were going to write a biography of Malcolm X or Marilyn Monroe or John F. Kennedy or Bill Clinton or Donald Trump, whoever, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to only write about the positives. Like, I want to know who they are. I want to know how they tick. I want to know how their shortcomings impacted their rise and how their failures impacted their successes. Like, all that stuff is important. And, and the truth of the matter is, and I, I always stress this point, flaws are not the same as defects. Um, shortcomings are not the same as failures. Like Brett Favre was addicted to painkillers. So people might be like, oh, you shouldn't write about that. Well, he was addicted to painkillers. He overcame the addiction and he was able to have this amazing career. So is that a flaw or is that actually impressive? You know? So mm-hmm. I just I just think too often people think, oh, you're writing negatively. I don't view it as negatively. I just view it as a journey. And we all have these parts of our journey and they're just really interesting. So if you're just going to – I don't care about wins and losses that much. I'm not that fascinated by game seven of the NFL season, blah, 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 blah. I'm more fascinated by how people handle defeats and how people handle victory and fame. And I just think it's really interesting. Now – and that's awesome because Jose and I, we broke down on this show. We broke down like while it was happening, the last dance docuseries. And then we revisited OJ made in America, which, you know, fans of both, but for one, you had Michael Jordan and I'll give my opinion. Like mm-hmm. was it, it was still awesome, but it became for me at least too much Michael Jordan mm-hmm. and took away from so many other people who were very interesting that I would love to hear about. Like, Jerry Krause, Tony Kukoc. And then you look at the OJ Made America docuseries, OJ wasn't involved in it. And I thought that made it better that you didn't, you heard everyone else but OJ. Mm-hmm. So when I look at like the Walter Payton book, he was passed away by the time he started writing it. And the Brett Favre book, which is actually kind of interesting that you interviewed like all his family, but you didn't interview Brett. Yeah. Like, how do you think that would have been when it came to you writing a story if like, you know, A, Walter was alive or, you know, B, if Brett was decided to do it, would that have kind of like dampened it a little bit for you? Or are you kind of glad that she didn't talk to them? I mean, I always prefer to have everybody talk. So it's never my choice that someone doesn't talk. Um, I do think it motivates you a little. Like when someone's not talking, 
there's a part of you that's okay. So I just really got to dig in on this one. I really got to dig deep. I really got to find everyone. And it kind of inspires you. I have to read everything. I have to study hard. I just have to do it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't impact me as far as, I mean, that's interesting. When someone talks and they can give their side of things, it does help you understand some decisions that maybe you don't fully get. So for example, Walter Payton at the end of his life was using, he used a lot of painkillers. Mm-hmm. And when the book came out, I sort of, they hadn't really, CTE hadn't been such a diagnosis yet when that book came out. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure he had CTE. If I had to guess, I would say Walter Payton had severe CTE. He was suicidal at the end of his life, really depressed, really erratic. Would it have helped me to be able to ask him what he was feeling and what was running through his head and how what were his nights like? 100%, if he would, would answer honestly. So I don't, I'm not, I'm never happy when they don't talk, but you just, it does motivate you to maybe put your head down and bust ass a little more. So do you, do you think Favre, and again, this is probably just obviously just on your opinion, do you think Favre didn't want to talk to you based off the fact that he didn't want to relive all that off the field stuff? I think a lot of guys, what happens is um, they're like, what's in this for me? What's in this for me? I'm not going to make any money off of it. I can't dictate how the story's going to go. I don't get to read it before it comes out. What's in it for me? And I actually, I a hundred million percent understand that. And I get Mm -hmm. that. And I always say, I respect that. I understand. But journalistically, I can't show you it before it comes out. I just can't do that. Um, So I get that. I have a book coming out about the Shaq Kobe Lakers. Shaq spoke at length. Phil spoke at length. Kobe didn't talk. Um, I understand it. Like there's, I wrote about 96 to 04. So you're talking about Eagle, Colorado and the alleged sexual assault. You, you know, like he's not going to have final say over it. He knows I'm going to write about it. Maybe he's thinking this just isn't worth it for me. I just don't see the benefit of talking here. I understand that. So, you know, what can you do? Yeah, it makes sense. Um, Since I was going to ask it later, but since you referenced the, which I'm excited for. um, Yep the Shaq and Kobe book, you know, even I, I, I don't want to speak for Jose, but I'm sure he could feel it. You know, us doing the podcast about classic athletes, teams, games, when you do all that research, you kind of feel like you're, you're reading these books. You feel like you get to know them. So especially you writing about these guys, uh, I feel like you kind of get like, even if you don't talk to them, but you're feeling like for a while, like you, like, Hey, you know, these guys well. So I wonder for you, how was it? Because Jose and I were together, actually. Um, we did our first podcast episode together when uh, the day Kobe and, you know, and everyone else on that tragic day passed away. And I'm wondering how kind of like surreal was that for you that even though Kobe didn't talk, you know, he's a big part of that book that you had spent the past few years working on. And that was a surreal day for most people, but especially you in that kind of odd spot you were in. Remember the innocent times? when the death of Kobe Bryant seemed like it was going to be the worst thing that happened in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Remember those yeah. days? Isn't that, or like the Australian fires, remember the, don't think Australian fires feel like 70 years ago now. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's insane. This year it's just, it's just, I've never seen anything like it. Um, it was, uh, I was sitting in a coffee shop writing and the book was done and it was going through edits, basically late edits. And I get a text from my friend, Amy Bass. And she says, uh, it was something like reports that Kobe died in chopper crash or something. And 
I, I was by myself. And I think I said out loud, what? no, no way, no way, no way. And it was obviously did happen. Um, I was devastated. I mean, I, I, I was devastated. I'd never had this happen before. You, yeah, he didn't talk to me, but I did spend two years pretty much hardcore digging into his life, his existence, his career, his time period. Um, it's, it's crazy. It still doesn't seem real. You know, he was such a vibrant figure. I live out here in Southern California. He was such a part of the fabric of, of this neck of the woods. It's, and it's weird. It's going to be, um, it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a weird book to promote and talk about because it's not overly kind to Kobe Bryant, you know, cause that's, it was 96 to 04. He was a young up and coming kind of pain in the ass. You know, that's what he yeah. was. And he was stubborn and he was cocky and he believed he was the best and blah, 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 blah. So someone asked me the other day, do I think people would have opened up to me the way they did had Kobe already died? And the answer is no, there's no way they would have, you know, it changes, yeah. it changes. Of course it changes. So, it's going to be an awkward few weeks for me, but you know, that comes with the turf. Yeah. And I'm interested because you, you tweeted this not too long ago about, you know, cause I'm, I mean, Jeremy were talking off the air earlier and like a team that fascinates me and always has, and always will, will be that, you know, Shaq and Penny Hardaway, like that Orlando magic team. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I, like that 30 for 30, it was uh, for me, it was like one of my favorite ones again, just because it was that team. And you, you had mentioned, you referenced, like, you tweeted like two pages of the book, and I, I'm already hooked. Like, I, <laughs> you know, you. but, um, like that dynamic with Shaq and Penny and, and that Orlando Magic organization, like, I was trying to figure out which is more interesting. I know, you know, everything that was going on with the Lakers was, was nuts, you know, with Phil being there and Kobe and all that. And, um, but that Orlando Magic dynamic is just as crazy to me anyway, just as the Lakers were. I agree. It would be a harder book to write because not as many people care about. Yeah. The, uh, they just don't. Not as many people care about that era. Um, you know, it's all ego, 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 ego. And guys, I mean, Shaq Penny wasn't that different than Shaq Kobe, where there's two guys. They both kind of needed to be the alpha. They both needed to be the highest paid. Um, you know, I think Orlando could have really been a dynasty. Yeah. I think that organization could have been fantastic. They had a lot of pieces on that team. Like a lot of pieces on that team. Um, but, you know, ego, 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 and they wouldn't pay Shaq. What do you definitely – I mean, you think about the weirdness of this. Shaq was a free agent at the same time Jawan Howard was a free agent. And <laughs> yeah. Washington paid Jawan Howard more – than Orlando was offering Shaq. And, and Miami paid Alonzo Mourning more than Orlando was offering Shaq. That is insane. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. So they were they were cheap. Did you guys leave me? Oh, here on. Yeah, no, yeah, you cut off. You're good, doesn't it? You're good. I got nothing else to say about it. That's all right. It's like we lost you, and then I, I'm I, abrupt. I'm abrupt. Oh no, we lost you a little bit. So it felt like, but um, I, I kind of will say this: like, as far as me reading your books, I was out of order. So I started with because 
I know it's blasphemous, but I'm a, I like to call myself and, you know, Jose as well, sports historian. I, so sir, I'm from Philly, but I love those nineties Cowboys. They're just fascinating on the field and off the field. So I remember getting boys will be boys when it came out for Christmas. And by December 27th, I was done. Like I was, wow. and I, I was like disappointed. I was like, there's no more. I, I was like, I'll just reread it again. You know, Christmas break, just why not? And it's a book I've passed out to like about a million people. But I, I remember hearing that like, and I do I understand why a little bit, yes. But my, like Michael Irvin was not happy about how he was portrayed. But mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why I became such a, a fan of your writing, it goes to like throughout the book, you had talked about Robert Jones and, and Michael Irvin giving him a hard time and other teammates because Robert Jones wasn't a partier. He didn't. And he wasn't as aggressive, and he kind of was disappointing on the field. He wasn't bad, but mm-hmm. didn't live up the expectations. But the part that got me was that 99 season when Robert Jones had been gone from Dallas for about four years, and he's with the Redskins, and it's that week one game, and Michael Irvin going up to the locker room beforehand and wanting to talk to him and apologize. And I'll be honest, it brought me to tears. Like, brought me to tears, too. And it made me respect – Michael Irvin a lot more, like, yeah. honestly, like, cause he did that in private. Like no one ne- knew about that. And just like, to me, just, I guess, yeah, when you get those stories kind of like that, like what's, what's that feeling for you? Like, cause you had your journalist hat on, but you're a human as well. Um, it's great. It's great. I mean, the Robert Jones, I went to Austin, Texas and sat with him in a cheesecake factory. I always remember that. And it's great. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, saw you know, very solid restaurant, good portions. And um, I remember sitting with him and just being kind of dazzled by his story and his honesty and his saga. He was sitting on his mom's lap when she was killed. I mean, the whole – he had this crazy tragic yeah. story. And he really wanted to make good. Like he was a weird fit on those cowboys. Like they would hold position meetings at strip clubs. <laughs> and which is very 90s Cowboys. And he never felt good about it. He never felt comfortable about it. He didn't like that. He didn't feel like he was being true. And I just thought he was a different kind of guy. So for me, my, my general philosophy of books when reporting books is like Robert Jones was there for everything Michael Irvin was there for. He's just never been asked about it or hasn't been asked about it a million times. You know, so... I'll ask Robert Jones about it and I'll find Clayton Holmes and I'll find Kevin Smith and I'll find all these different guys who just were never asked about it. And the general take is, you know, they have stories too. And usually they're happier to tell them. And the stories are more original than guys like Aikman and Michael Irvin and Emmett Smith, who've been asked about it a million times. Yeah. And, and, you know, keeping on the same theme with Jeremy's team, the Cowboys, um, we, I was, I, because, you know, from around that time, like the 90, you're looking at 94, I'm thinking of, you know, when Deion Sanders was like everything, right? He was, mm-hmm. he was the man and he went to the 49ers and he put them over the top and, you know, they were able to beat the Cowboys and win the Super Bowl. And, you know, then he goes to the Cowboys and I'm thinking to myself, looking, you know, from the outside looking in like, wow, like this is a perfect fit. Like this is, you know, it, this is exactly what Dallas needed. And now he's going to put them over the top for the next couple of years. But, you know, how... I mean, that was a uh, that was a great signing, but was it really a great signing? Like, because, you know, just looking at stuff and reading stuff, like, 
you know, that work ethic he brought to that Cowboys team was not something that, you know, that, that helped them out. You know what I mean? Like the Cowboys team was already, you know, doing some crazy stuff, but yeah. talk to me about like his influence on those younger guys that came in and, and, you know, and then that relationship with him and Aikman that really suffered based off of that. Um, yeah. He was not, he was not a good, yeah. I mean, he was, he was gifted obviously. And, and his career since football has been awesome. And, you know, I, I got no, nothing, but nothing negative to say about Deion Sanders yeah. as a person, but you know, it was it was a team under Jimmy Johnson that was built that was all about work ethic, doggedness, hard nosed, um, believe in yourself, blah 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 blah. And when Barry Switzer became coach, and when they brought in Dion, it really became more of a sort of laid back country club atmosphere. And you know, Dion has always used that the phrase, which is funny, a business decision when he decided not to tackle people or get out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not funny when you're on the team and you're trying to win and your star cornerback won't tackle a halfback because he's outweighed by 20 pounds. Like, it's not funny. It sucks. So I think he's gifted. He's a Hall of Famer. He should be a Hall of Famer. But I don't think um, he made the Cowboys long-term better. I think he was – it was a – a bad signing. I really do. That's interesting. Honestly. Um, I have a question that's more, this is going to be for my dad, honestly, but like I said, you know, from Philly. And I remember growing up and when he was with the Carolina Panthers, my dad's name is Sam. It's my grandpa's name. Uh And my dad, you know, watched the USFL and the Philadelphia stars and, yeah. Quick to point out to me, Sam, he was older at this point, Sam Mills. And you doing the USFL book and talking, you know, Jim Moore coached Peyton Manning, but said that Sam Mills, best player he ever coached. Yeah. Do you mind for our listeners who don't know, you know, Sam Mills, you know, went into the NFL with the Dome Patrol with the Saints and then with Carolina, but really talking about Sam Mills, who many call like the best player ever to play in the USFL. I think he was. I mean, he wasn't the best. You know, there were players who went on to better careers. Like, you were definitely – Reggie White was clearly a better all-around player than Sam Mills. Jim Kelly, Steve Young, they probably had better careers overall than than Sam Mills. But I would say in the USFL, Sam Mills was the best player. And it's an amazing – I love his story. You know, I love his story. He was – he went to Montclair State, which was a Division III school in New Jersey. He – had a bunch of tryouts. He had a trial with the Cleveland Browns and he impressed the coach, Sam Ortigliano. But Sam Mills was about five foot nine. And he played middle linebacker. And that's way too short for an NFL middle linebacker. And Sam Ortigliano cut Sam Mills and it kind of hurt him to do it, but he did. And when the USFL started, it's funny, it was a rival league to the NFL, but all these guys knew each other. So there were a lot of calls between oh, you should look at this player, you should look at that player. Like, it wasn't it wasn't as hostile as people think. And the coach of the Browns, Sam Ritigliano, called uh, Carl Peterson, the general manager of this new team, the Philadelphia Stars, and he said, listen, we just cut this guy, you should sign him. His name's Sam Mills, he played in Montclair State, he's a middle linebacker. You're going to look at him because he's five foot nine, and you're going to think, no way, no way, no way. Give him a chance, and you'll see. Sam Mills goes to camp with the stars and from day one, he's just otherworldly how good he is and knows for the ball and just 
kicked ass and I think was the best player in the USFL and then went to the Saints. And I, to me, I mean, I think he's a Hall of Famer. I really do. I, I think was going to ask you that, yeah. I do. And I think one of the things that annoys me is it's the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but stats in like the Canadian League or the USFL, I'm not saying they should carry the same weight as the NFL, but like he was the best player in a really, really good professional football league. That should carry some weight, and it carries no weight, and he's not in. And I just think that's a little bit of a crime, a football crime. Yeah, I can remember that night. Those Saints teams, those early '90s teams, man. That those linebackers were amazing, man. Um, yeah. Ricky that, Jackson, Vaughn Johnson, Pat Swilling. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. great. So you 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 wrote a you wrote a book on my guy, uh, my man Barry Bonds, and um, you know that he was you know growing up. That was my guy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you couldn't even, when you know, it started obviously in Pittsburgh and, and in yeah. San Francisco. And, you know, so I, I'm I'm so curious, man. Like, because, again, I'm a huge fan. I, I was – I have to read Game of Shadows. I, somebody let me borrow that. And I know you referenced that as well in the book. And so I, it blew my mind. Like, because you look at Bonds and you look at all the interviews and you look at all this to hear all the stories on how he's – you know, this, I mean, obviously he's a superstar, but, you know, and he knows he's a superstar, you know, but right. it, it, you met, you talked about it in the book, like, you know, he wanted to be a star, but then he really didn't want to. Like, can, can you just like elaborate a little bit on that? Because I, again, looking at it from the outside, it looks like that's what he was born to do and he was raised to do that. And, and, and that story is a lot different than people think. Uh, he's my least favorite athlete of all time. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. He just is. I can't. You know what it is? I'll tell you what it is with Bonds. This isn't really going to answer your question, but it'll give you some some insight okay. into the guy. Um, I am a big, 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 big proponent of judging people on how they treat those they don't need to be nice to. Like, generally speaking, athletes are going to be courteous to the media because they don't want to look like a douchebag in the media. They're going to be nice to people signing them to sneaker deals. You know, the Nike rep comes. They're going to be nice to the Nike rep. But how are you to the person who holds the door for you? Mm-hmm. Are you to, how are you to the person who runs a shine booth somewhere? How are you when you walk by someone and he looks down? How are you? And Bonds was such a failure. I've never seen a person more mean to people he didn't need. He was just mean. He was a guy who didn't say thank you when you held the door. He was a guy who treated people like crap. I mean... From a media standpoint, and I'm not saying it's the way you judge athletes, he was the biggest dick I've ever seen in my life. He was so – and he was a dick to be a dick. Like, he was mean to be mean. It was almost fun for him. He liked seeing people tiptoe up to him and feel uncomfortable. He liked making you wait four days to talk to him. He would agree to talk with you on a Tuesday, and you'd finally get him on a Saturday. And he'd be great when you got him on that Saturday, but he made you wait four days because he just didn't care about your time. He was so freaking callous and mean. I've never seen another player like this. And it's funny or not funny. There was a story by uh, Andrew Baggerly in The Athletic a couple months ago about Bonds now. And he's very upset because he's kind of a pariah and an outcast in baseball. And he's confused why no one is really giving him jobs or coming up to him. And it's pretty simple. You were an asshole to people for far too long. And now they don't need you anymore. You need them. And people remember you being an asshole. And I... I got no problem with you being a Bonds fan. I understand it. He was very exciting. He was dynamic. He was freaking, you know, a special player. 
uh, he cheated. He used PEDs, but whatever. We, I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. Different people, different people feel different. But I just think there's a lesson there, a really important lesson that you know, shit comes around. You know, the, the you know the chicken comes comes home to roost, and the way you treat people will come back to you. And the way he treats people, treated people, it was just the worst I've ever seen. Yeah, he 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 seemed like a jerk. I I, I mean that that I can definitely like understand and and I'm not I'm not arguing any of that. It was more like I guess the love when I was a kid. But yeah, when I when I got older and he was the same friend towards the end there, yeah, he totally looked like a jerk. And it just wasn't nice. Like it yeah. just you could have the thing that's so pathetic about that stuff is you have an opportunity. You really have an opportunity to spread joy to people and to bring warmth to people. This limited span in your life where you're really important and people listen to you. And there's so many great things you can do for people. Mm-hmm. You know, you can make pe- the power to make someone's day. It's just amazing, you know? And like, I don't know. I d- it just feels like a wasted. Yeah. He was a great baseball player. Yeah. He hit a lot of home runs, but at the end of the day, if everyone thinks you're a dick and you didn't make people happy and you didn't, you made people happy with your actions on the baseball field, but you didn't use that moment to better people or to make people feel good. Uh, what's it all, what's it all for? Now, do you think, Jeff, I mean, obviously, steroid, you know, all that stuff. You're going to ask if I think he belongs in the hall, right? Yeah. That, I mean, I was just going to say, do you think because of that as well, that that's keeping him out too? Oh, well, that wouldn't be fair. I mean, there are a lot of racists and assholes in the Hall of Fame. Um, I don't think he belongs in. And I'll, tell, I'll, give you my, I'll give you my quick explanation why. And you, you don't have to agree with me. It's all good. Um, I have a friend who is a journeyman catcher named Sal Fasano. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Sal played for the Phillies a little bit. Yep. yep. Sal's one of the nicest human beings I know. I've come to know him really well over the years. Uh, he's told me in private, off the rack, blah, 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 that he never used PEDs. And I believe him. Just in, as a friend, if he told me he did use, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't write about it because we're just now, he doesn't play anymore. It's insignificant. But he's told me he never used. And when Sal was playing late in his career, he had a son named Santo who was uh, born with a heart problem. And Sal really wanted to get back to the majors um, so he would have the major league health insurance, which was better than what he was getting as a minor league player. So he hung around and hung around and hung around and hung around and fought and fought and fought just to get health insurance so his son could uh, have a good heart. And he he would not use PEDs. And I remember when the Mitchell report came out, and there were about 10 catchers on there who were kind of journeyman level. There were guys like Sal Fasano, 240 hitters, maybe give you nine home runs in a season, that kind of guy. And all those guys used, and they cheated. And I was just thinking how Sal Fasano just wanted to get back to the majors to help his freaking family. But he knew doing PDs was wrong, and he knew it violated the code. And all those guys who cheated just didn't give a shit. And they, they were blocking him because he wanted to do something right. It's very hard for me to get past that. Mm-hmm. It's very hard because people say everyone was cheating. Well, not everyone was cheating. Not everyone was cheating. That's impossible. Not everyone was cheating. So even if the first 30 guys were cheating, there was number 31 who decided I don't want to cheat. And to reward people for cheating, I always say if my daughter is in school, all you people say, well, Barry Bonds, the first part of his career, he was great. He was Pittsburgh. He'd still be in the Hall of Fame. And I always say, let's say my daughter is in school and for most of the year, she doesn't cheat on her exams. And then the second half of the year, she does cheat on her exams. Well, 
She's not passing that class if they catch her. She's not being, because not, you're not rewarding someone for cheating. You're not saying, good job. I know, a great job. Because even though you cheated, you still, wow, what an amazing grade. That'd be a really warped way of raising our kids. And I just don't believe in it. No, I, I understand that. I, yeah. I, I want to ask you, because hearing what you talk about with the bond and reading so many of your books, is it kind of by design? Because a lot of your books have, whether it's talk about the 86 Mets, um, Bonds, Clemens, the 90s Cowboys, the Showtime mm-hmm. Lakers, they kind of have this rise. And like, like a lot of these guys have this rise. And it's kind of like they, you know, granted, they're young men, you know, with a lot of money, a lot of fame, a lot of stuff being thrown at them. But there's a fall to it, too. And it is kind of like that. Hey, it comes back around how you act and how you treat people is a lot of your books to me have that theme in there. And is that kind of on by like design or is that kind of like happenstance with you? I just think that's life. I just think that's life. I think we all have. I mean, we all have in our own personal lives, no matter what it is, highs and lows, um, rises. We all have challenges wherever we got to. Like you guys, you're doing this show. I'm sure there was a story about doing your show and you started at this and maybe someone in your life said, you shouldn't do that. That's stupid. No one's going to listen or you're not going to get any guests on. And then you say, well, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And then there comes the complications and the scheduling. And then here you are doing this cool show, you know, like it's no different. Like we all have our sort of, it's just life. It's just life. And it could be, it could be the microcosm of a single season where teams have highs and lows. It could be Brett Favre overcoming addiction to painkillers. It could be Walter Payton coming from a small black school in Mississippi. We all have these things. So it's, it's not, it's almost like it's kind of inescapable, I guess is what I'd say. Yeah. I guess for me, it's just, I, Walter Payton, like, wasn't known about, like, until like you wrote that book, but like the 86 Mets are kind of infamous. Like, Hey, I heard about it even before your book, but definitely uh, uh, after, you know, reading your book, that plane ride after they beat Houston in the LCS, like that was a, that was an epic one. And like yeah. stories for those 90s Cowboys and you, people that kind of heard about Favre. So like they're, they're kind of guys who like they're kind of known for their like high, like up or like, big, like, you know, going up high and then kind of crashing. Even the Showtime Lakers, like that really did – it ended with, you know, November 7th of 91 when Magic announced, like, mm-hmm. that was the end of an era. So that's why I didn't know if that was by happenstance or not. Because I get it, like, everyone in life, whether you're an athlete, coach, all of us, like, you know, us, Jose and I with our show, like, have the ups and downs. But those are some epic, <laughs> epic infamous, like. Well, know, I mean. If you want to read a book about the 1999 Cleveland Browns or <laughs> the life story of former Philly second baseman Steve Jelks, you know, I'm happy to write it. But, you know, you got to you got to pick topics also that are going to get, you know, yeah, get an audience. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So definitely. Mm-hmm. Now, when you have a when you have a book like with the those will be like boys will be boys and those Charles Haley stories kind of keep coming up um a i guess the first question is like is that something that you kind of like ride the wave with or like do you just kind of like piggyback off of or it just kind of happens and b did it kind of change for you like i believe him talking about his his mental health um 
struggles kind of came out after that book. Like, did that kind of make you feel a little bit differently about what you had wrote when it came to Charles Haley? Yeah, I regret it actually. Um, yeah, I regret it. I feel like, uh, you know, you're working on a book and people talk to you about some guy masturbating in locker rooms and it's kind of funny and you talk to one person and then you talk to three people and they'll tell you about Haley and his crazy antics. But I, uh, I don't know. Uh, I feel like when you find out someone is bipolar, I think that's what he's diagnosed with. Um, it's a little unfair to make fun. And I just, I was, I wasn't mature enough when I wrote that book, I think to understand that. So I, uh, I would say that's a regret of mine. And I, I understand. I, I you know, hindsight's also 2020. I, I get that. Of course. You know, but that I appreciate you, you sharing that. And I remember, I don't know if you remember, we've, we've talked before on like another podcast, but I, I'm someone that Walter Payton always fascinated me and when he died it kind of even though you knew it was coming you know but it kind of hit so swift and the impact it had it kind of reminded me Kobe's was obviously sudden but like it kind of had that impact like it hit kids and people of all like ages like it hit the NFL in a way um and I felt like it wasn't really fair the the backlash you got because you told the real story and to me the story isn't as all your books, it's inspiring. It is like, like you said that in this conversation, it's the ups and downs, and it's the real story. Do you think that experience with Walter Payton, with that Walter Payton book, will kind of help you with the the stuff you're going to kind of expect to go through with this Three Ring Circus book, talking about Kobe, like, or do you think it's going to be kind of completely different for you? No, I think about that a lot. I think it should help me. Um... I wasn't prepared for that. I was not prepared for that backlash. I was, I didn't see it coming. I didn't really know how to deal with it. Um, I was definitely blown away by it. And I feel like with maturity and with experiences, you learn how to handle different situations. Like I am bracing myself now and kind of preparing myself now for people saying, how could you write this about Kobe? You know, like thinking it through and how do you respond and what do you say and how do you defend yourself? And I just, I just don't think, when that happened with Walter Payton, I was really, I, it was a really devastating experience for me. It was real. I, I put so much into that book. That book meant so much to me. I love Walter Payton. I mean, I freaking love Walter Payton. Um, so it really crushed me and I was not ready for it. Um, I say, I say this, I am in my room and I look, I'm looking at that Walter Payton book and, and I, I appreciate, especially going back to how we started the conversation, I appreciate it because, you know, talking about how people want to whitewash and forget about history, I think it's important to show that, you know, these guys went through these struggles and they were great athletes, great, you know, warriors on on the field or on the court, but they went through these things. And as someone who loved Walter Payton might be my favorite player ever, I appreciated it because I felt like, oh, I can connect to him more than like before it was just, he was this freak athlete who only missed one game in his career and always worked hard and ran up that hill. And I'm like, I can't do that. So we're just two different species. And I felt connected to him. Like, no, he was a flawed human being like me. And he was a sensitive guy like myself. And that's why he was upset when fridge got the touchdown and, and he did it and stayed in the locker room. And I think it's important for people that to me, the 
story of Kobe was, you know, that first half of his career, he was a great talent, but he was difficult. And he, to me, the guy that I loved and connected with was the guy who he became after what happened in Eagle, Colorado. And that's when Mm -hmm. he wasn't just a guy doing the McDonald's commercials and smiling. He became the black Mamba because he was going to be himself. And he learned from that. And I think, that's important to tell. Like he went through that experience and he came out a better person for it. So I yeah. can say, I appreciate that you tell these real stories because for me, they inspire. I appreciate that. I, uh, you know, I try my best and I, I, you know, I just try your best. You do your best, you know, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I'll say, we got to be honest. Um, I appreciate you doing this and I, Oh, know yeah. that, you know, 24 hours ago or a little before that, that's not how Jose and I thought the conversation would start. But, yeah. you, you know, following you on Twitter and, and knowing how passionate you are about, you know, humanity and life and telling the story, I appreciate you coming on. And I know we both do. And having that real conversation, I think it's important for everyone to have and important for people to listen to as well, like talking about, like, you know, what is going on in the sports world and in our world and our country society right now. So I, you know, just thank you for coming on and it's been awesome as always. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for thinking of me. Seriously. No. And, um, and just so you know, like I always say, like, I hate when people are like, uh, I hate when people are surprised when guests come on. Like, I, I, I don't know what this is. I do a lot of, do a lot of podcasts and people are say like, Oh, I didn't think you'd come on. And it's like, I'm just some guy who writes books, you know, like I, I just see like I'm just some guy who writes, you know, like it's just, it's just, you know, we're all just people trying to get by in the world, you know, and if someone wants to talk to you, that's cool. So I, no, um, and that's, that's the way I feel. And, and I'll ask Jose the same thing, but um, I, I always believe in nothing is ever, I'm not entitled to your time. We're not entitled to your time. So I appreciate the fact that, you have a life outside of your job and family and other interests and things going on. And that mm-hmm. you spent time with a couple guys from Philly and, and, and talk to them about, you know, the yeah. sports that we love and the books that we love. So for me, it's yep. an appreciation because I'm, no one's entitled to your time. I'm not entitled to that. Jose isn't. So I always appreciate that. Well, you guys told me you're going to pay me like 10,000 bucks for appearing. So true. I just thought, you know, true. You know, yeah. True. I'm, 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 I'm still waiting to get paid, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's true. Yours is coming. I think it's uh, the fifth of never, right, Jose? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. No, no and thank you, man. Yeah. And it's September 22nd, right? Three Ring Circus? Correct. Coming out then. And we're excited to read it. And hopefully, I know you'll be doing a lot of. Uh, a lot of publicity, but love to, I, I can kind of guarantee it'll probably be like the other books I've read by you where I'll be done in like probably two or three days. <laughs> so love to have you back on and kind of talk about the the juicy nuggets of that book as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it. Thank you. All right, guys. All right, take care. Take Hi, care, Jeff. Jeff. Right, bye-bye. There you go. Yeah. That was good, man. I, I, I definitely appreciate Jeff coming on and, and I wanted to go into the, you know, the three ring circus book a little more, but I didn't want, you know, he's going to want people to read it first. You know what I mean? So, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. For that. He, yeah. That, that was fun. I thought the same thing. I was like, 
I kind of wanted to ask like any juicy any anybody yeah. who and he kind of had said it like Kobe. I wanted to see how Kobe was portrayed, and he said Kobe's not portrayed probably the best in that. I kind of wanted to see like who is someone who sticks out, like because he always has those like and he kind of mentioned it earlier, like for the it's a Robert Jones or a Clayton Holmes, like yeah. you know for the Showtime book. I remember it was like Wes Matthews. It's always these like unsung heroes who people don't know about who wind up really just giving like these great stories. And I kind of wanted to ask him, is it, you know, is it Brian Shaw or something like that? Like, you know, or big shot Bob given or some assistant coach, you know, or Gary mm-hmm. Vitti. But uh, you're, I thought the same thing, you know, it's, it's a month away, a little under a month away from it coming out. And uh, he's going to want to save that. Yeah, for sure. And that's fine. I wanted to respect that. And, you know, I, I wanted to get into that far, you know, the, the gunslinger book and, and kind of like ask him his, his thoughts on, on Brett Favre. And, you know, like me, I know me and you've talked off the air uh, about that. And so I'll ask you since we're, you know, we, we have this platform where we can mm-hmm. talk about these things. And um, what do you, and not to just jump off topics, I know we were just talking about the other book, but no, that's cool. um, like Brett Favre, mm-hmm. you know, overrated or underrated? And why? He is – he's overrated. Um, and I say that because he's become – he is such a great personality. You know, he was mic'd up all those times, and, and he has that lovable scamp kind of, I'm just a country boy out here throwing the ball around. Yeah. And I think, you know, and no, you know, in part to – John Madden, you know, Frank Caliendo yeah. made a career off of doing the John Madden impression. Raven, and I kind of, that's why I liked it so much, because I'm like, yeah, John Madden does talk about some Brett Favre a lot here. Um, I think it's just everyone kind of just talked, and, and he is relatable. I think also quarterbacks, especially even in that era, I think all throughout, but you look at like Steve Young and Aikman and, and, and Marino and Elway, they kind of had that statuesque, like yeah. gunslinger, like kind of vibe to them, and 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 they were kind of robotic. You didn't, they, you didn't really see a lot of personality from them, especially back then. Where Favre, you got the personality, and he was unorthodox, and you know he also made a lot of mistakes, you know, on the field. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and I think that made people love him, but I think the media, everyone kind of got swept up with him. And we we miss a lot of things. I think he definitely should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, he's a great player, but I think he's definitely overrated. And um, yeah, like to me, like like some people make like Brett Favre compare. I think Aaron Rodgers is better than Brett Favre. Like I think if Aaron Rodgers didn't play another down, I like him over Brett Favre. Like I do. Um, like some people want to like Brett Favre compared to Peyton Manning. It's not even close. Yeah, it's like, not it's, close. Yeah. It's not close. I think Drew Brees I like over Brett Favre in there. You know, I I I respect Brett Favre, but I think it's just uh, he got overrated because he just the me. I mean, look, he's in like there's something about Mary. He which is cool. I'm glad, but he just became so relatable to people and the you know the game. Which he hey more power to him, but like. The game where his dad passed away on Monday night, like the day, the day before, and he kills the Raiders, like I give it up, like it's a miracle performance. But I mean, Jose, like I watch those clips, and I'm like, 
I, I don't. It's like two questions. I'm like, I don't know how the. I know the Raiders were terrible then, but yeah. I'm like, how how they don't intercept like four of those passes at least blows my mind. And B, I'm also like, for motivation and inspiration, it's great, but I would never show that to a young kid wanting to be a quarterback. I would never show that clip like that game because it's just he really is just heaving the ball up, and it's just. Somehow, like Javon Walker's coming down with it, and it makes yeah. no sense. And not knocking him, that was an inspiring, emotional game, and it touched everyone, including me. But as far as on the field, yeah, he's definitely overrated, in my opinion. Yeah, you can tell that that Packers team was 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 ready to play for him, you know. And and they those wide receivers were making great plays, and but in, in the book, like he, like he, like Jeff was mentioning, like how. Cause, and then I started thinking, right? Like he, well, let me just finish. Like he was mentioning how, like, the press in Green Bay were really covering for Brett Favre, and you know, a lot of the stuff he was doing wasn't really getting published and and put out there. And I know the '90s obviously was a little different of an era. It's not like they had like you know social media or anything like that. But still, like the media was all over the place still. And um, yeah, like a lot of the stuff that he was doing was getting covered up. And and then I, it started making me think, like. You know, if if Favre played in another city, you know, say he played in a bigger city, like say he played in, in, you know, in New York or, you know, somewhere in the East Coast or even like Los Angeles or, you know, Dallas or something like that. Like, you know, does does that change? Like cause in the book, he talks about not only was, you know, Favre addicted to painkillers at one point, uh, but he was also, you know, a heavy drinker. And, yeah. And. You know, then he called, and, and Jeff called a lot of a lot of heat from, you know, he, he was talking about Irv Farb, and and he put the same information out there that he Irv Farb was a heavy drinker and womanizer, and you know he was kind of a superstar in Green Bay. He had his own radio show, and you know he couldn't wait to tell people what he did to help Brett Favre like get to where he was at. And you know, I get it; that's his son, and I get, and I know that's super important to dads. But it, it, it's just, and you had kind of mentioned it you know, towards the end they're talking to Jeff and it's just like, man, like how you how he can make a superstar just very relatable and you know, in his books he does that plenty. But with this with this, you know, the gunslinger book, it, it was just caught me by surprise, like a lot of the stuff that I was reading on, uh, when it came to Favre and 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 a lot of the favoritism and, and all that. And again, Green Bay's a smaller town, but um I, it just had me thinking. Like if you think, I think up, it be? as far as in the nineties, I think I think it'd be different today. I mean, you said that. I think the fact that it was Green Bay, and you look at it, before the Favre, Holmgren, Reggie era, the Packers hadn't won since Lombardi. They so were they, terrible, especially yeah. at that time, yeah. It was like a 25-year gap. So, you know, really that's what the Packers, Green Bay and Wisconsin, they have – the Packers are everything. So the fact that you have this golden boy quarterback who's leading them back to relevance and back to Super Bowl contender – yeah, you're going to be an icon there. And I think that it would have been swept under the rug a lot of places. I think if he's in Dallas or New York, it gets reported because there's so many media outlets and it's that big story. And and But I think if they're winning like they were in like that time frame, it gets swept under the rug to an extent. But it gets reported more than it was. Um, I I just look at it like, the, that winning factor and because I'm looking also in other places like he wrote about the Cowboys 
Mm-hmm. And when the Cowboys were winning, a lot of people knew that they were meeting in strip clubs and, you know, Charles Haley was doing certain things. But in Dallas is kind of like a controversial city. But, like, he wrote about and you read, like, Nate Newton being at, like, a strip club and kind of was, like, tipsy and was drinking. And a w- reporter went in there and Nate Newton, you know, Nate Newton's no little man at all, going uh-huh. up to the reporter saying, and when you write this, you're going to say I had one beer, right? And pretty much, like, intimidating, kind of, like, strong-arming him. And the reporter's like, all I saw was one beer. And, like, you know, so, like, even then, like, I mean, and who's going to – if the Cowboys are losing, can Nate Newton say that? I don't know. When you're winning Super Bowls and you're everywhere, you definitely have more pool, in my opinion. So, I think it comes down to, like, we see it a lot. Like that pool kind of just happens and, and, and you, things get overlooked quite a bit. Yeah. In, in that book, he is Nate Newton. You can see like, just from all the stuff that he did on TV, like, he seemed like a pretty funny guy. And, you know, when they signed Deion Sanders, he was, um, he played that must be the money song mm-hmm. for like a month straight <laughs> in the locker room and to like mess with Dion. And, you know, he had, um, they printed pictures out like Xerox copies. I'm sure. I mean, I, you read the book, so um, about that passing it for the nine. Oh yeah, parents call. Oh, it, it was. Oh yeah. yeah, it was. It definitely was. But they would plaster that all over his locker and stuff like that. And Michael Irvin wrote interference on it. Red. It was. I mean, that they were crazy. The, those Cowboys teams, but that locker room had to be fun. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and look how like now things just. It's funny how if you are, I mean, he said it, like, it does matter. Like, you, you, these athletes, and a lot of us know, whether it's, you know, I know we're different, but we're not an extent. Like, you know who to be nice. You know if you see your boss come in, all right, put on, like, the act. Even if you don't want to, all right, got to be nicer. And then if someone who's below you, like, you, you don't, doesn't mean you treat them meanly, but then the pressure's kind of off, you think. Like, you're not, yeah. like, on. And you look at it, it's funny. As much as you want to blast like Jerry Glanville and the Falcons. So many people now one of the worst deals for them to trade Favre away. Brett Favre drunk his way out of Atlanta. Yeah, he was all out of shape. And, yeah, he, yeah. he that drinking problem had been showing and it was showing that he, he missed the team photo because he was hung over. Yeah. You know, like that's not a bad, I know we could see what happened but, like, there's no way you can tell me. Like, the Herschel Walker deal, I'm like, yeah, that's a bad deal. Why'd you do that? The Brett Favre deal, I'm like, for what you got? Yeah. Yeah, I don't blame Jerry. You you, you actually can get a, a draft pick for this backup, this third stringer who just throws interceptions and gets drunk all the time. And, sure, I'll do it. Like, I don't blame them at all. And was out of shape and was weighing, like, 250 pounds. Like, no one wants to talk about that. Yeah. You know, and, and no one wants to say those things now. So I, I like that Jeff writes that because even I've heard Brett Favre talk about it, and he'll admit to some extent, but then there's also some times where he'll talk about Jerry Glanville not liking him or not wanting him. And the, Jerry Glanville said, no, that's not true. I don't know, but it's like either way, if I'm Brett Favre, I have to look at it. I didn't live up to anything when I was in Atlanta and I was not committed and I was drinking too much and I was out of shape and was not focused on football. Like point blank. He wasn't. Yeah. His claim to fame in Atlanta, he was throwing footballs to the upper deck and yeah. And Jerry Glanville used to bet guys like, Hey, I bet you 
Mississippi. They used to call him. He used to call him Mississippi, oh. and and, <laughs> and he used to bet guys right on the field. I bet you he can throw a ball in, into the upper deck, and he would because he had an arm. I give him that, you know. And he had a cannon, and you know. But again, that's just one of those. You know, he mentioned like some of these guys are iconic, like this thing, you know, the Walter Paytons and you know Brett Favre's and. Just uh, Brett Favre is like one of those conversation pieces where you can get a lot of different opinions. And I, I, I love talking about it, you know, but so that's why I wanted to get your opinion, you know. And Yeah. But, yeah, it, I agree with you. I, I think he is a, a tad bit overrated. Um, I think we mentioned this before in our in our episode when we kind of touched on like the steroid era. He's got like that Kyle Ripken syndrome. Like, you know, these guys, you know, had these consecutive streaks that – you know, they broke those consecutive street records and everybody just, you know, like, like worships these guys and, and, you know, cause they came to work every day and, you know, how many times and we talked about it with Kyle Ripken, they might've hurt the team by doing that and yeah. playing hurt, but making sure that street continued. And cause I don't care who it is, human nature, that's going to play on your mind. Like, I, I don't care who you are. And, you know, I just feel like he gets a little more credit than just because of that. And I mean, again, when he retired, he had all all these passing records. You know, he, you know, he won three MVPs. You know, um, you know, he got a Super Bowl. Obviously, lost one. Um, so you know, he, he's got the numbers and all that. And you know, he's a, he's a great player. But I just, I, I agree. I think he's a little yeah. Cool. And I and I think that's a great comparison because Ripken. Because you know, when you look at Far. So many times I've heard people say, "Well, he's the best QB of." of the, the nineties. And I'm like, no way. Like no way. I'm not going to take him over Marino or an Elway, like not even close. And then I look at it. I know the strike happened in 94, but so many people are like Cal Ripken saved baseball in 95 with that streak. And I'm like, to me, what saved it was Ken Griffey jr. You know, and, and bonds, but those two guys, Griffey Jr. to me still is the most exciting player I've ever seen on a baseball diamond. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's what brought it back. And, and really, to me, the baseball came back with whether, you know, it's tainted or not, the home run, you know, thing in 98. Oh, yeah. Like, that's what did it. I'm like, Ripken's streak was a nice moment, but it's like, that saved baseball. Cal Ripken doing, I'm like, oh, God. Like, <laughs> it just kind of bothers me. Like, because Ripken has the same kind of thing where, People talk about him as a teammate in a prima donna. And to your point, and I'm someone who Barry Bonds is weird. I grew up liking Barry. As I got older, I've been turned off. But I'll say this. All of Barry's stuff was always reported. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Pittsburgh or San Fran, my whole life, you heard teammates. Andy Van Slyke has made a killing ripping Barry Bonds all these 20. And they've, Bonds been gone since 93. Andy Van Slyke, all I see him for is to take shots at Barry Bonds. Okay, cool. Cal Ripken, there's so many things about, hey, he was prima donna, didn't want to, he had to stay at a special hotel, difficult, teammates didn't get along with him, thought he was better than, had to have a special, you know, recliner by his, all these, that's not reported though. And so it is kind of like who you schmooze up to a lot of times can kind of sway it. Yeah, and I think that Andy Vance, like, situation with bonds it also stems from bonds you know like claiming right or wrong i don't know but claiming he got better treatment in in pittsburgh 
because Andy Vest, like, was, you know, he was white, you know, and Bonds obviously is not. And, you know, Bonds always used to put that out there, like, you know, that he thought that. And, you know, again, if that's right or wrong, I'm, I, I, I don't know. But I, 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 I can see why they don't like each other. You know what I mean? Like, and I can see why Andy Vest, like, any chance he kind of gets, he, he kind of throws a little dig in there, here and there. Yeah, but, you know, when is it, to me, let it go? And yeah. when is it that those Pirates teams of the early 90s, like, it bothers me that compared it to, like, the Eagles of the early 2000s, when fa- Philly fans just want to blame Reed and McNabb. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, you win as a team, lose a team. Now, Brian Dock, who I love B-Dock, and Hugh and all those guys, they get no blame for losing those games either. I remember the defense getting run up and down in those games and you know, Larry Fitzgerald in 08 went crazy against the defense. Yeah. No one talks about that. It's McNabb and Reed. And I look at it, Barry Bonds is the single reason that the Pirates didn't get to the World Series from 90 to 92. It's not the team. It's not everybody else. And that they blew 3-1 leads to the Braves. Yeah. That's all Barry Bonds. And that's why I look at Andy Van Slyke also like, all right, I'm not saying you have to like the guy. I think Barry Bonds was difficult. Don't take that away. Yeah. But it's like – you all lost that. You know what I mean? You, it's like y'all got there. Y'all lost those series together. And that's why I don't like – he really kind of points the finger like, oh, it was you. It was Barry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 a, it's a lot, man. And it's just it, – it's cool to talk to, you know, you know, talk to somebody who was in there and kind of like, you know, because, you know, that John Rocker story, like, fascinates me too. Like, because he – you know, it, it was just – and he wasn't like he was a young reporter doing that, Jeff. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and getting that story and that story kind of propelled him to like, you know, put his name out there. And, you know, I, I just I, I love hearing those stories, man, from these writers that were in the in the middle of all of that. And, it, you know, it, it's going to continue. Like, I, I don't want to talk about our next week's show yet, but, you know, it, it's just it's just cool, man, to get that inside information from these guys and just hear it from them and let them tell their stories. And uh, I'm just glad I know, and I and I do want to say, like, I know we talked about doing, you know, for August, you know, our college football series and all that, like, you know, and you know, but you know, we've had these guests come on, and you know, that kind of took precedence a little bit, and you know, but that's something we'll definitely revisit another time. But it, again, back to my point it, it just it's so cool to like get this inside like information like this this is awesome no i i agree and um yeah i think for us i think for the listeners you know our college football series hey lord willing we're not going in a way we're not going away we i know we yeah. love this show we love bringing it and there's times plenty of times to talk about you know the topics we want to talk about and then more even you know oh, yeah. for college football and but um and it goes to, you know, and I respectfully, I get what Jeff Perlman was saying. And I agree, but I disagree. Like, where I agree in that, yeah, I don't think anyone should act like I'm too good to come on this show. Like, yeah. you know, especially, I know how we've asked, like, Jose's reached out to people I have. We ask respectfully and all that. So, you know, no one should act like I'm better than you. Like, so I agree with that. But... I'm always, if these guys are going to make, because I feel like we should never, so many times people do that willingly or unwillingly, we take for granted people's time. Yeah. 
And I don't ever want these guys to feel like I know you don't feel that way. And I like like we don't appreciate it. They're giving time to us and to the listeners to tell these stories and to be asked these questions. And so that's why it's always I know I want to speak for you, but I can I feel like I can like important for us. to Let them know we appreciate you coming on because you don't have to do this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if he's waiting for ten thousand dollars, he's going to keep waiting too. Yeah, <laughs> like I said, the fifth of never. Yeah, fifth of never. So, it's coming that day. But I, I agree. Like, and 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 what's cool is like, you know, growing up, you know, I know for me, and, and again, I, I think you too, and I know for people listening, if you're listening to a sports podcast, you know, then you probably did the same thing and had plenty of conversations with friends, family, whoever, and just talk about sports for a long time. You know what I mean? Disagreed on stuff, talked about teams, players, whatever it was. Like you always had those people that you can just have that conversation with. I just feel like when people come on the show, it's like, it's not a big deal. Like, you know what I mean? It's a big deal to us. Like, but it's just like, we're just talking, like we're just having a conversation like like we've done all our lives, you know? And I, and I can appreciate him saying that because, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not going to say that to people, but it's just like, you know, I, I just feel like that's what we're doing. Like, we're not, you know, we're not going to ask questions that to these guys that are going to blow their minds. Like, you know, I'm sure he's had, you know, had some of these questions asked on before. You know what I mean? Like, um, what we like to, obviously, like, that's the goal. But it's like, I just want to have a conversation with these guys and, and get their inputs on on situations that I've seen. Like, man, like, I wonder what really happened. And then I got yeah. Need to do that, so this this is why I love doing this. This is awesome, man. Yeah, and I I I never believed in gotcha journalism. I believe in having real conversations, and we've had it with each other. Yeah. So it's like to be fair, I I don't think a guest should expect it if we're going to have it with each other. But they've always it's never a gotcha moment with each other or trying to be like just controversial. It's just being real and transparent with ourselves and with the the listeners and trying to get that understanding and to get a perspective and to grow and learn more about these sports, you know, as individuals, as teammates, as whatever, and, and grow in life. So um, I am glad he said that, but I wanted to know, because I look at it like this, I, I, I don't ever want a guest to feel like th- I, like, you know, their time is, you know, wasted or, not appreciate it because you know what as you my friend first and foremost and like my partner my co-host on the show i don't ever want you to feel like like i'm wasting you because i know you have a life and you have things going on so when you show up like that's it's a good pressure but it's like no i want to do the best for myself but then i want to do the best show i can for you because you're putting that effort in that's wrong of me to like you know take your time for granted yeah, it's just like in sports, man. Like, I don't, I don't want to half-ass it if somebody next to me is busting their ass. Like, you know what I mean? I want to pull my weight. And, and it's kind of like what you're talking about. And that's what we try to do with each other. I know we do that with each other. And, you know, if we have guests on, I, I want them to feel that too. So, yeah, yeah. I, I agree, man. I agree. So, it's uh, it was it was awesome. It was it was fun. Um, And it keeps – I think we've – what I've liked is the topics kind of have been very different with these mm-hmm. guests from yeah. even the sports we're covering with Jason Martinez with hockey. Um, we have with uh, Bob last week focusing more on like, you know, coaching in that perspective. And this was kind of, it came to race culture. 
we got to hit everything writing styles storytelling and personality like it's we we've kind of been very different and um I've, I've loved it yeah so have i it's been this show's always fun with me but and i know with you but it's just it's just times two you know what i mean yeah. it's just it's, it's 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 been great well this has been awesome and we're gonna have a, a special because we talked about it with jeff but we'll we'll have a special episode about what's been going on with the stoppages, you know, coming up after, you know, this episode. And then we're going to have another guest. So we, we, we're going to have some content for you as always, but I think these episodes are, you know, going to be really great for, for us to do, but for the listeners as well. Yep. We can't wait. As always. That's right. For Jose, I'm Jeremy. Thanks for listening to In The Zone. You guys take care. Peace.